Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I have my co-host, Tommy Ng, with me. Hi, everybody. And today we're talking with Koji Lawozawa, PhD candidate at Stanford University in California, USA. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Nice to be here, Otis and Tommy. Hi. Nice to meet you. It's great to have you here with us today. So what first attracted you to archaeology and history? Well, um, I got interested in archaeology in high school, actually. Uh, I was sort of always interested in history classes, but also in um, going outdoors and archaeology felt at the time like a, a combination of the two. And then I volunteered on an archaeology dig in high school um, and loved it. It was a historical archaeology dig in Southern California. Um, it, I had lots of fun. I learned a lot of things. And it really just sort of bit the got the bug for the, uh, the discipline and majored in it in undergraduate at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, came back to the United States. I'm from the Bay Area originally and worked in CRM for a couple of years and then started uh, grad school at San Francisco State and haven't looked back since. So, remember what was the first site you were at when you were that the first that he said it was a historic one? So, the first uh, excavation I worked on was actually the grad school project of a Stanford archaeology. PhD uh, student named Stacy Camp, who's now a professor at Michigan State University, and she was excavating um, the section house of migrant Mexican workers in the San Gabriel Mountains who had worked on the Mount Low Railway. It was an inclined railway, and she was looking at the lives of these migrant workers at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, I volunteered on that dig for about two months. I had a family in Pasadena, which is just right at the foot of the San Gabriel Mountains. And uh, it was really just eye-opening, thinking about uh, what you can understand about the lives of people who didn't necessarily leave a huge archival presence of primary first-person narratives about their experience, but that you can sort of access some of that material through the archaeological record. Um, I found fascinating. So it sounds like you're more. It sounds like you do a lot of historical archaeology. So is that your main subject of interest? Yes, it is. Um, I I've worked on historical and uh, prehistoric archaeology in California. Um, mm -hmm. In the CRM work I did, I worked for Stanford University's um, Heritage Services, which is sort of their in-house campus archaeology. Uh, company. And we did a lot of work with the local Muwekma Ohlone tribe um, on prehistoric sites, ancestral Ohlone sites, Native American sites in the Stanford lands and sort of the peninsula, Bay Area peninsula landscape. But uh, in my sort of formal studies, I focused on historical archaeology primarily. One of the topics that you've done a lot of research on is the Japanese internment camps in the USA. In another episode, we spoke with Bonnie Clark about the Amache internment camp. For the benefit of those who missed that episode or who don't know much about what they are, could you tell us briefly what these camps were for and why people were imprisoned at them? 
Uh, definitely. So um, this is a, a subject that's had really sort of close personal resonance to me. Um, my grandparents were incarcerated during World War II. They're Japanese American, which is sort of how I got interested in this subject. But um, just to sort of be brief on a, a historical overview, in the lead up to World War II, um, there was really intense anti-Japanese sentiment in the um, United States, especially on the West Coast. And sort of with the attack at Pearl Harbor, this precipitated with a lot of pressure from anti-Japanese interest groups to round up and imprison everybody of Japanese ancestry. And that's essentially what happened. Uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which created an exclusion zone along the West Coast of the United States. And essentially everybody of Japanese ancestry living in that exclusion zone, which contained half of the state of Washington, half of Oregon, all of California, and the southern parts of Arizona were forced to go into 15 assembly centers or temporary detention facilities, and then 10 purpose-built incarceration camps. Hmm. So they were, you said they were still, they were like 10 incarceration camps uh, in your in your local region, correct? Yeah. And how many, how many prisoners in total were at these camps? So there were, there were 10 camps, Two in California, Tule Lake and Manzanar. Two in Arizona, Gila River and Poston. Two in Arkansas, Rower and Jerome. And then one in Colorado, Amachi. One in Wyoming, Heart Mountain. And one in Utah, Topaz. And one in Idaho, Minidoka. And overall, about 120,000 people went into these camps. And each camp sort of averaged between 10 to 15,000 incarcerees. Hmm. Wow. Did they move between the camps much or were they mostly fixed at one camp for the duration? So um, the sort of process of the incarceration was that people went from their homes to temporary assembly centers. And these were hastily constructed fairgrounds and racetracks. And then from there, they were sort of farmed out to these various camps. People requested transfers. A lot of times families were initially split up. So you'd have um, maybe if your parents lived across town or your brother and sister lived in a different district, they went to one camp and you went to another camp. And so people petitioned to sort of be transferred into the camps with um, closer family members or community members. And then as the duration of the war went on, a lot of people shuffled around as um, some camps closed. Jerome, for instance, was one of the first camps to close in um, 1944, it began closing down. That was one of the camps in Arkansas. And so the remainder of the Japanese Americans who were at Jerome were moved to other camps like Gila River in Southern Arizona. So there was a, a bit of movement going on uh, during this period. So I, I, assume the, I assume the U.S. government would be pretty receptive if somebody petitioned to be close to a family member in another camp? Yeah, the, the government was fairly perceptive. Uh, one of the things that's really, I think, um, important to, to keep in mind is a lot of the administrators of the camps themselves were actually fairly sympathetic to uh, the Japanese-American community. 
And so you see a lot of the camp administrators when you look through archives and at their records and notes, and they have this sort of sympathetic perspective. But despite that, the camps were still really sort of traumatic and um, painful experiences for the people inside them. But the, the facilitators and the administrators tried to ease these um, concerns and, and were receptive to people moving and reunifying family members. And then there was a whole sort of separate camp infrastructure that arose for um, people who were suspected of having leadership roles or contacts with folks in Japan. And about uh, 5,500 Japanese nationals went into Department of Justice, FBI, or U.S. Army internment camps, which were distinct from these general population oh, camps. And they were eventually reunified with their families for the most part after anywhere from a few months to a few years of separation. Um, and in Texas, there was a specific camp called Crystal City, which reunified families who um, the head of household was generally not a U.S. national. So he's an actual Japanese citizen there, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, on that point, um, for first-generation, well, let me backtrack for a second. Uh, so first-generation Japanese immigrants are known as Issei in Japanese, and second-generation people born in the country um, of migration are known as Nisei. Um, and so Issei these first-generation immigrants who were born in Japan and migrated to the United States were legally barred from U.S. citizenship at the time. Um, Asians were not allowed to naturalize as U.S. citizens, and so you had this whole generation of people who couldn't seek U.S. citizenship, and at the time the war broke out, were Japanese nationals. Um, many of them had petitioned previously to become U.S. citizens, but were denied because of uh, the sort of racially informed immigration laws that were on the books. And then when the incarceration camps happened, you had this mixture of people who didn't have citizenship protections and then people who were U.S. citizens. Two-thirds of the people who were in these camps, of that 120,000 people, were U.S. citizens who were basically stripped of any protections that they have under the law based on their race. Hmm. Wow. I'm just curious. Do you know what was what was the population of the uh, Japanese population? What's the number of the pop? What's the size of the Japanese population at that time? Because you said it's it's about 120,000. You said that were interned at these camps. So I thought it might be higher. So um, in the United States, in total, the Japanese population was much larger if you include the state of Hawaii. Okay. Um, yeah. I want to say there were maybe. Um, a couple hundred thousand Japanese people of Japanese ancestry in Hawaii at the time, but Hawaii didn't undergo the same mass um, removal and incarceration as the mainland. And in fact, uh, there were reports that basically showed that if you were to incarcerate Japanese Americans in Hawaii in the same fashion, the economy of the islands would come to a grinding halt something like 90% of truck drivers in Hawaii were people of Japanese ancestry. And that, that's kind of odd considering 
that's where Pearl Harbor occurred, right? So <laughs> exactly, and so it sort of highlights the um, the superficiality of uh, the incarceration orders, which were ostensibly for national security purposes. Um, at least that was how they justified them to the public. But in the one place where there actually was an attack from uh, the Japanese Navy, you didn't have that same sort of national security protocol. Though there were smaller internment camps in Hawaii, there was nowhere near the scale of indiscriminate racialized incarceration as you had on the U.S. mainland. That's, that's, that's weird. <laughs> I just, yeah. Which of the internment camps have you done work at? So I've done work actually in person only at Gila River, which is one of the camps in Southern Arizona. And that's where my own family was incarcerated. My grandparents were at Gila River. I have an uncle who was born there, um, several aunties and uncles who were there as children. Um, and then I've collaborated with colleagues, um, data sharing and um, talking about different types of archaeological features who work at Manzanar in Eastern California, Topaz in Utah, as well as um, Amachi in Colorado, Bonnie Clark, I've gotten to know very well over the course of our research, and um, the Kuski internment camp in Idaho, which was one of those smaller Department of Justice camps. And so that was a, a very specific type of camp that was separate from the general population internment camps, or sorry, incarceration camps like Gila River or Manzanar. So, have you ever have you contacted anybody on the Canadian side? Because I know we had Japanese internment camps up here too. I haven't been to any of the camps in Canada. I've been to uh, uh, so I have a colleague who works in uh, British Columbia, just outside of Vancouver. Bob Muckle. Yeah. Oh yeah. Been, yeah. We know Bob. We know Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you know Bob? <laughs> Every, everybody knows Bob. Um, so uh, we've talked about some of the lumber camps that he works on that had primarily Japanese um, Japanese laborers and artifacts and sites that he thinks reflect um, preparation for the uh, internment in Canada. So there are there are sort of caches of artifacts that might reflect people preparing and sort of hiding objects or um, getting ready to leave objects in their um, in their lodgings as they're getting ready for the the mass internment in Canada, but I haven't um, been able to work on a camp up in Canada uh, mm. as of yet. I'm just curious. So, so what's your research objectives in studying the camps and this period of history? So, um, you know, a lot of historical archaeologists, especially working of the the very recent past or the living past periods of time in which there are still people alive who, who experience them, often get asked the question of, well, what does archaeology add to this? And why are you researching this? Why can't we do this from a historical perspective? And for me, um, when I started working on this subject, it was first a way to sort of take the training I had of an archaeologist and um, direct it towards a topic that had personal relevance to me and to many people in my community. And it really represented an opportunity to look at this history and this period from a very different perspective. 
than you might necessarily get from the archival or the oral historical, um, the oral historical record. And so when looking at Gila River, I've been focusing on two sort of uh, arenas. One is landscapes. Uh, how did people modify uh, the landscape through gardening, through creating ponds, through making paths and basements? And what was the material culture in the camp? What were people eating off of? What kind of products and commodities were flowing into the camp that we can find from archaeological survey? And so those are the two major uh, subjects that I've been looking at and trying to understand what did people do to the landscape and how did they modify it? And then what kinds of objects were people interacting with? And both of those things are often gestured at or hinted at in the historical record, but uh, using the archaeological sort of toolkit and method, I think gives us a really different perspective that's often been lost in, in previous research. Do you, do you find, do you find there's a lot of similarities with the other camps? Like look, when, like you talked to Bonnie Clark and at Amachi, right? So you, you must have found there must be a lot of similarities and differences too at the same time. Definitely. So there's a lot of um, similarities and differences. For instance, uh, when thinking about, well, first climatically, each of the camps are in a very different environment. So Amachi is in Colorado, it's sort of a high plains, high altitude area. Um, Gila River is in the Southern Arizona desert, very different climate. Manzanar, Eastern California, also very different climate. And those are probably the two camps with the most archeological work done on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, all three camps have gardens, for instance. I know Bonnie's work is really focused on gardens. Manzanar has some spectacular gardens that have been excavated um, primarily by Jeff Burton and Mary Farrell and the National Park Service team there, and they've done just an incredible job. Gila River also had a large number of gardens, but it looks like they're very different in both preservation and style than we see at the other camps. So at Gila, um, Working in collaboration with the Gila River Indian Communities Cultural Resource Management Program, which are my archaeological partners and members of the um, tribal community. Gila River is on a Native American reservation. It was one of the two camps that was on a reservation. We've documented over 230 garden ponds that are visible to the surface today, uh, which is, as far as I understand, the I think largest number of documented ponds at one of the camps, um, these concrete ponds decorated with rocks and adjoining barracks, which is just sort of a phenomenal density and variety of, of gardens, which are different than the styles and way we see them manifest at camps like Amachi and Manzanar. How big were these ponds? they they really range um so and this is another difference i think um, that's been interesting is most of the ponds in gila have been fairly small close to the barracks we're talking something between two to three meters in length by maybe one to um, half to one or two meters in width um, fairly small often next to barracks 
But at Amachi and Manzanar, there are much larger instances of um, very large ponds. There are a couple of big ponds. I mean, you know, four or five meter in length uh, ponds at Gila River, but most of them are fairly small. And at Manzanar and Gila River, or uh, Manzanar and Amachi, I think we see uh, more examples of these large park projects, for instance, and large public space modifications, which I think speak to different communities and the ways in which people thought of gardens and the use of space. What were some other ways that people adapted to life at the camps? So people, um, people were very innovative um, beyond the gardens, which were both sort of social and climatic responses to, to the landscape. People modified material culture. Um, we find instances of paint cans that have been made into gardening implements or brooms and screens that have been changed into um, different types of tools and ways uh, to navigate the environment. Swamp coolers were very popular that people modified onto their, their barracks to deal with the heat in the desert of Arizona. Basements has been another really large archeological signature. We found underneath where the barracks would have been and all of the barracks at Gila River were removed. So we only have the foundations left, um, but they were lifted on stilts concrete footings and stilts and underneath was was basically um, dirt bare earth and the imprints from fairly large basements are still visible some of them actually have concrete stairs that you can see today and they're um, these dugouts that people hung out in there were social spaces in oral histories i've heard tales of people brewing sake and other <laughs> liquor underneath them playing cards and gambling and just sort of escaping both the lack of privacy that the incarceration camp is defined by and the climate that the southern arizona desert um, gives off that that hot and dry heat of arizona these basements were much cooler places um, to socialize and, and to make livable. Did, uh, did, sorry, did anybody in these camps, were they tasked to doing like infrastructure projects, like uh, similar to labor camps? So, uh, yes. In, sorry. The short answer is yes. The variety of labor that was undertaken at these camps really ranged widely. Gila River was a huge agricultural project. They had the largest and most productive agricultural project of the 10 camps. They actually shipped vegetables from Gila River to all, their, all of the other camps. They also had um, work parties that went to pick cotton in particular during the first six months of the camp's operation. There were um, worries that because of the war effort and the um, draining of a labor force to go into the military in Southern Arizona, there wouldn't be enough people to pick the cotton supplies, which were vital to both the war economy and the Southern Arizona economy. And Japanese laborers were um, sort of enlisted to pick cotton and to, to sort of save this crop that was on the verge of um, 
rotting on its on its trees on its uh, uh, plants. They also at other camps um, were involved in highway projects. The Kuski camp, for instance, in Idaho, the internees who were there were involved with um, making highways. I know in Canada that was also a big use of Japanese labor. That's right. And, yeah. And in the United States, I'm not sure about the Canadian situation, people were paid for their labor, um, but at very low wages. So um, the wage range in the camps generally was between $12 to $16 a month, uh, which was well below what the standard wages for the kind of work people were doing. What have you learned about the day-to-day life of these camps, such as routines or common activities? So the camps, uh, it really ranged depending on your age. A lot of the young people in camp who were, let's say, below the age of 18 went to school. Um, There were schools that were set up, and many of the people I've spoken to who are now in their 80s and 90s were school children when they went to camp, and they remember attending these classes Um, There were social events, there were dances and music, there were jazz bands um, performing in mess halls, people went on dates, sports was a huge part of uh, the sort of social landscape of the camps. At Gila River, there were over a dozen baseball teams set up, (laughs) actually a um, professional uh, almost a professional level baseball stadium that was built by Kenichi Zenimura, who was a um, pro ball player before the war. And so he and his sons helped design and construct a baseball field, and they had tournaments at the camps. Um, There were the work, like we had already discussed, the farm work. There was a camouflage net factory um, that made camouflage nets for the war effort. Uh, There were art schools. Chiru Obata at the Topaz camp, for instance, was an art professor at Berkeley, and he set up an art school at Topaz. And uh, one of the things most people remember fondly at Hilo was there was a movie. So one of the camps at Gila River was next to a series of buttes, and they built a stage and a movie screen at the base of one of these buttes, and they would screen movies every Friday, and everybody would go out and sit on the buttes in the evening and they'd start projecting the movies onto these big screens. So there was a lot of socialization, but there was also a lot of time. Um, There wasn't much to do in these camps uh, organically. And so people had to sort of fill their time with activities and ways to sort of break up the monotony of being imprisoned. So they basically kind of built like little towns from the sounds of it. They did. In fact, Gila River was the fourth largest town by population size in Arizona after its construction. Um, Hmm. Houston, which was the other camp in Arizona, was the third largest town in Arizona. (laughs) So when the camps were shut down, like what happened to them? So uh, the camps get shut down in 19... Between 1944 and 1946, um, there was a Supreme Court case, Mitsuo Endo, um, sort of petitions to be able to return to California. Um, 
people could leave the camps by 1943, but they couldn't return to the West Coast. So they could leave camp and go to the Midwest. My grandparents, for instance, ended up going to work in factories in Cleveland. Uh, and so Mitsuo Endo um, sort of sues to be able to, to leave camp. And the courts found that the U.S. could not continually hold Japanese Americans without um, quote unquote proof of disloyalty. So they were administered a loyalty questionnaire. And once this loyalty questionnaire, which was very controversial, um, was finished, the Supreme Court basically ruled that you couldn't keep people in these camps. So they start phasing out the closure of the camps in 1944. And this goes on till 1946 and dismantling them. The barracks are sold to um, often to returning veterans from the war. In the case of Gila River, many barracks were sold to tribal members on the Gila River Indian Communities Reservation. I should mention here that the local, the reservation government, the Gila River Indian Community government objected from the camp being built on their reservation land and the US government built it anyways. <laughs> uh, in Tule Lake, which is in Northern California, the barracks were converted into houses for braceros, who are migrant workers, agricultural workers in Northern California. Um, some barracks in Arizona still exist as uh, converted houses in Mesa and Chandler. Um, all of the valuable materials, pipes, copper, were stripped from the camps. And basically, the rubble at Gila was left. So the government didn't um, dig up the concrete foundations. They basically took everything else that they could commodify and sell off and sold it and left the campground to um, decompose. Well, if someone visited one of the camps today, what evidence of the camps would be visible on the surface? So uh, at Gila River, and I'll, I'll mention here that um, being on reservation land, you need permission, you need express permission to visit the Gila River incarceration camp from the Gila River Indian community. Um, and there's a large issue with people going on to the reservation land without permission first. So if any of our listeners are ever interested, um, I highly recommend they get in contact with the Gila River Indian community government. You can look them up online. Um, and ask for permission. Uh, at Gila, the foundations of the buildings are visible. These garden ponds are really stunningly visible because of the sort of low uh, movement of soil that occurred in that area in Southern Arizona in the Sonoran Desert. There actually isn't a lot of soil deposition in a lot of these areas like other camps. Manzanar is on a floodplain, and so it has a very different soil depositional process. And so if you were going to visit Manzanar before um, the archaeological work there, you would see much fewer features and remnants of the camp. While at Gila River, uh, a lot of the remains of the camp are clearly visible on the surface today. So it really ranges at different places. Other camps um, have had we're on agricultural land. And so they've been turned up and replanted with crops after the war. And so there are very few um, remains left on the surface. 
But again, the preservation at uh, Gila River is sort of unique in that capacity. What sort of things are preserved in the archaeological record? So in addition to the more obvious features like um, like these gardens and these ponds um, and basements, there are really subtle features, compacted earth that um, we can trace out and sort of get an idea of what pathways and walkways people walked inside the camp. And then uh, one of the things I've been really interested in in the material culture side is there are these large trash deposits associated with the camp. And in these deposits, you have ceramics and glass, uh, plastics, as well as faunal materials, animal bones, um, burnt seeds, all sorts of different pieces and parts of material culture that you can look to to understand different dynamics within camp life. I know I know you touched but I know you touched upon this when you were talking about your objectives. So like what methods do you use when doing field work at these sites? Like what other methods do you use, for example, such as you you talk about archival research, what about interviews with former prisoners and other methods? Mm-hmm. So so my collaborative agreement with the Gila River Indian community was to conduct this research with as low impact as possible on the site. So I'd worked with the archaeologists there to develop a research plan that could maximize our information potential, but minimize our impact on the ground. So we started out with pedestrian survey and then I and total station mapping. But we've also used drone mapping, um, done a lot of drone survey work, um, and then uh, PXRF work. We're working on a sort of experimental case of seeing if we can source some of the materials that were used in garden construction using portable X-ray fluorescence, Hmm. which has been really fascinating. And then for the material culture, we're using... um, which and I think Bonnie talked about this in her methodology at Amachi as well, what's called a catch and release program. So we're field cataloging materials in a portable photo studio on site, trying to analyze and get as much information potential out of them, and then returning them to the sites, the spots where we collected them from. And then archival research and oral histories interviews with, with former incarcerees. So I'm curious, this catch and release, are there any concerns of, let's say, looters or people snooping around, people wanting to collect stuff? Definitely. So looting is is a, always a concern with archaeological projects. Um, I've been very, um, I try to be very careful when I give public talks, for instance, and now since we're moved to the realm of uh, virtual talks, not to, for instance, post any maps um, online that are accessible, um, where people can find out where material culture is. And that's always a concern with archaeology. At Gila River, because it's on a reservation and it's on private land, you can't access it if you're not a community member legally. Um, and then once you're on the reservation, it's actually not that easy to find some of these uh, areas. There's a smaller concern about looting because it's it's sort of inaccessible. There are signs that um, in some of the trash deposits that looting may have occurred in the past. Um, And so 
there's sort of the tension there between trying to to document it and leave it, but also protect it from from these looting concerns. We try to do the best we can with getting the the information and and returning it and not leaving a huge signpost of where we are. And I think the conditions on the ground have been conducive to that. But in other circumstances, at other sites, it may not be so successful. Hmm. How do the archaeological, historical, and ethnographic records compare to each other? So they they really, I think, complement each other um, because they tell very different stories. Um, the historical record, the archival record, has been really great to understand the perspective of the camp administrators, for instance. There's a lot of records from camp administrators, memos, uh, journal entries uh, that detail how the camp was constructed, how administration occurred. Um, but they don't cover, for instance, what the everyday life of, was of people or what uh, the social aspects necessarily were. On the other hand, oral histories, people tend to remember um, particular events, joyful times, particularly tragic times. And so you get really poignant um, snapshots and perspectives of what camp life was like. But then they often don't cover the quotidian, the everyday, the what are you eating off of and what kind of food did you have access to? What did your utensils look like? What toys were you playing with? Often those types of details aren't present. And so the archeological record both um, fills in those types of gaps, things that are left out of the archival and the oral historical, and then also provides different lenses to understand social connections and networks, tracing material lines of transfer and communication help us understand what communities were formed. Looking at um, the material culture of, of uh, for instance, looking at ceramics, you can see what were people eating off of and what kind of imagery is being presented, what kind of um, mementos were kept or left. And those types of things, again, are not often touched upon. And then finally, um, first generation Issei uh, often did not do oral historical interviews. And that's been a real tragedy um, for a variety of reasons that that perspective has been largely lost. There have been very few, um, only a very few uh records of perspectives from Issei on the camp experience. And so looking at the types of materials they were using and the things they were engaging in, like constructing gardens, helps us better understand that perspective that is being lost in the historical record. What are some of the benefits of using the archaeological methods you used? Like and what way is it different from investigating the far past, like for for something that's like 2,000 years old or even 10,000 years old? So I think the there's a conception of archaeology that it's, that it's only for the deep past, for 1,000 years ago. And one thing that I think has been really fruitful 
And um, something one of my advisors, an archaeologist, Jason DeLeon, has really emphasized in his work. He works on um, the archaeology of undocumented migrants on the southern border. Yeah, I read some of his articles. Is that, yeah, so he he has really emphasized, and I think this is something I've tried to carry forward, that archaeology is um, a perspective and a toolkit, and it's not necessarily a temporal designation. And so we can bring the archaeological perspective and ask questions of material and um, landscape that are really relevant to the contemporary moment, um, but that provide, again, these different perspectives that necessarily, that aren't necessarily represented in historical or oral historical resources. And even just looking at, uh, for instance, the archival record and thinking about materials as archeologists, thinking about tracing and examining material culture or the transfer and connections of materials uh, provides a really different perspective than I think perhaps historians will bring to looking at the same material. So that's been, I think, a really fruitful part of looking at this camp history through the archaeological perspective. Yeah, that, sounds, that sounds similar along the same line of William Rafjay and his garbage project. Exactly. You know, I think um, William Rafjay was definitely a pioneer in thinking about looking at contemporary society through archaeology. There's things we leave in history, things we say out loud, and then there's things we do. And archaeology looks at the residue of the things we do, not necessarily the things that we say or we write. And um, that tells always a different story. Yeah. <laughs> it's always different between what, what we find archaeologicalized versus what people say. <laughs> <laughs> What were some of the most interesting discoveries or results that you've had so far? Uh, so beyond looking at sort of the gardens and basements, which I've been fascinating with, um, sumo platforms have been really interesting. I know Bonnie has talked about some of the sumo um, residue of sumo wrestling that they found at Amachi at Gila River. There are very different types of sumo wrestling platforms. So uh, the, the residue of those at Gila are fairly large, maybe three foot high mounds. Um, so instead of the sort of compacted earth that you got at Amache, um, at Gila River, these, there are these immense three foot high, about 10 foot by 10 foot square mounds that are still visible that have a faint impression of a round ring in the center of them that I've been really fascinating with. We found two at the canal camp, which was the smaller. So Gila River had two sort of sub camps and canal camp was a smaller one with about four and a half thousand people. And Butte camp had about 8,000 people. It was larger. Two at canal camp and one so far at Butte camp, um, which really speaks to the popularity of sumo wrestling in the camps to have at least three sumo practice areas. And then it's been interesting to look through camp newspapers and find articles of sumo tournaments. So I've been really interested of, of, of that sort of unexpected, very culturally important practice that has left a, a very big mark on the landscape. 
So I can kind of imagine these sumo wrestlers are pretty big guys. So I guess there's no limitations in terms of access to food in these camps, right? <laughs> there are, uh, you'd be surprised. There are actually photos of uh, a few sumo wrestlers, sumo matches um, from camp, and they're they're not big guys. They're actually like <laughs> lightweight uh, class, <laughs> lightweight, yeah, featherweight sumo wrestlers, right? Um, so that's. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think sumo wrestling is very important in the agricultural communities. A lot of Japanese Americans were working in agriculture before the war, and um, you see a lot of these men from their teen years to their sort of middle-aged um, years, just sort of scrawny sumo wrestlers duking it out on these platforms. So what happened to the people afterwards? Like, what did most of them do after they left the camps? So um, a proportion of people, maybe about one third, um, resettled in the Midwest and the East Coast. The cities like Chicago, Cleveland, um, places in Minnesota, New Jersey, Seabrook Farms. And they went there um, as the camps were closing down uh, for work. And within 10 years, most of them uh, moved back to the West Coast. For the other two-thirds of people, they left camp um, directly for the West Coast. Most of them went back to California. But uh, because the majority of Japanese Americans at this time were leasing or renting property, they couldn't own it. Issei were also subjected not only to a ban or bar from naturalization, but what were called alien land laws, uh, where people ineligible for citizenship, these Asian immigrants, weren't allowed to purchase land. So when they were moved to the camps, they basically lost their homes. And when they go back to California, they go into hostels, a lot of churches, um, both Christian and Buddhist churches are used as temporary hostels for people to move back into their hometowns and find work and then residences. Burbank in the Southern California area was, they um, constructed a huge, uh, essentially trailer park, um, almost a second camp for people to come, thousands of people to come back and stay in the Berkeley or Burbank area because they didn't have enough houses to go to Japanese Americans and people weren't renting to them. There was a lot of anti-Japanese press prejudice. It was really tough for people to readjust after the war back in California. Uh, a lot of property loss, a lot of economic struggle, and a lot of racism. Uh, I interviewed one person in San Jose and when he came back to his farm, he was a child, um, not long after they got back, a group of people cut the power lines and tried to set their house on fire. They fired at the house, wow. um, started a fire, and cut the phone and power lines, and they had to escape in the dark to a neighbor's residence. I mean, it, in some areas, it was pretty intense, violent, vitriolic responses. In other areas, people were... Um, Neighbors welcomed people returning with open arms. And so those are some of the really bright spots of the community response. 
Um, but it really ranged uh, the experiences of people as they came back. Did they end up working like in low end, low end jobs or dead end jobs? Like they can't recover their lives at all? A lot of people worked in, um, so a lot of people were able to return to agriculture. Gardening um, was a large profession before the war and continued to be in the years after the war. Um, a, an important uh, profession for the Japanese American community. The types of jobs um, for the opportunities for Issei, who were by and large older, were much more limited. And for Nisei, who were often younger in their teenage years or in their early 20s, there were more opportunities. But initially, certainly, um, there was a scarcity of work and uh, a scarcity of, of uh, access to work. One woman I interviewed told me that she went to an employment line in, in LA looking for a secretarial job and she's in line. She gets up to the window and the woman at the window tells her there are no jobs available. And she's the first Japanese person in line. And then she steps out of line and the next person gets directed to a job. And so the sort of blatant discrimination really limited access to, to work for a lot of people in the immediate aftermath of the war. And I assume this has also affected your family lives too, eh? Like, were there any divorces or separations or anything like that? There was definitely a huge impact on family structures and lives. Um, uh, many of the Issei generation, um, never spoke at camp afterwards. Uh, people returned home and just never mentioned camp again. And silence often speaks louder um, in those types of conspicuous settings than words. And so there's a generational trauma that was carried in a lot of families. Um, there's a, a psychologist, uh, Donna Nagata, Nagata, who has written about um, this sort of interracial intergenerational trauma that's carried in these families. I don't have uh, uh, statistics, but I'm sure there were um, divorces and marital um, schisms that occurred as well. There, were, uh, there was a large sort of upending of gender roles that occurred in camp. Um, women uh, who often didn't necessarily work or weren't listed as laborers before the war, um, were able to get jobs and opportunities to work inside camp that weren't necessarily present, which created different family dynamics at home. And so the camp was really a transformative experience in a lot of ways. What valuable lessons can we learn from studying these internment camps? How is this relevant to society today? Uh, so I think one of the most important lessons that we can take away from studying these camps is that camps are used as solutions to different types of population problems, whether in World War II as incarceration camps for this racialized or racist policy or refugee camps today or undocumented migrant detention centers. Camps and confinement are used as 
solutions to geopolitical problems, and they always have negative consequences. I think I said earlier in this interview that the camp administrators were often sympathetic to Japanese Americans and in many ways tried to help them. And yet, despite these positive perspectives or these, these willingness to help the people subject to their, their care, they had intense trauma and intense, uh, it was an intense act of violence on a community. And so I hope to learn, I hope that studying these camps can help demonstrate that despite uh, the best intentions behind the use of camps, um, and we'll, we'll try to go out on a limb and assume the, the best intentions in, in some of these cases, but they still have intense, long-lasting negative repercussions on people. And so I hope that we can learn that camps aren't a solution and that even though they keep getting turned to as solutions for these large problems, that they're really uh, fairly negative. And then the second thing I think we can help learn, we can learn from these is the resilience and the ways in which people build community to combat these harsh conditions. The inspiring thing looking at these camps and looking at the research that I've done, that they've done in um, Bonnie's work, that Jeff Burton and the folks at Manzanar have done, is understanding the way that people navigated the harsh conditions, formed communities, created a sense of home, and how that uh, really speaks to the um, strength of communities and of people to persevere this. And I hope can help humanize um, the people who are in the camps. We look at uh, the Southern Arizona desert and the number of migrant detention centers over the last five years has increased dramatically and they're causing intense harm in the communities that they're that are being subjected to it. But you're also seeing really inspiring ways in which migrants have helped each other and um, look to to weather this trauma. So what are your future plans? So my future plans are to um, hopefully finish up my uh, my PhD dissertation in the next in the next two years. Um, I'd like to continue research at Gila River, collaborating with the Gila River Indian community. And I've started a second project looking at the material culture of a pre-World War II Japanese American community in Santa Barbara. Um, in downtown Santa Barbara, there was a small, um, what is known as Nihon Machi or Japan town. And I've been working with the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation to document some archaeological material from that community um, that have been unearthed in recent excavations. So I'm looking forward to looking at that um, different lens and different time period in the Japanese American experience. And most of the people from that um, Japantown actually were incarcerated at Gila River. So it's sort of starting at Gila River and starting to backtrack through time and trace the communities that people came out of. Wow. What advice would you give to archaeologists who intend to do archaeological research on recent historical period sites? I'd first say that uh, I think this holds true for 
historical period sites and older sites, that community engagement is key, that um, archaeologists are just one stakeholders, um, one party uh, interested in a site, but that there are communities that are deeply tied to the sites we research, and that creating long-term sustained relationships with these communities are essential both to the ethical standards of doing archaeology and also to what archaeology can contribute to society. So for, for my work, um, building a, a relationship and engaging and respecting the perspectives of the Gila River Indian community has been essential, as well as the descendant community of Japanese Americans who are linked to this camp, the descendant community of administrators, children and grandchildren of administrators who are at these camps. Um, that kind of engagement creates both a richer process, helps provide perspectives, and really helps to highlight what archeology span can contribute to these communities so that we're not just extracting, but we're contributing in our work. Well, it's very interesting work that you're doing in terms of the research results themselves, but also the historical subject of your research. I think that gives us a lot to think about. It's very relevant today. I look forward to hearing more about it. Thanks for coming on the show to talk about your work and good luck with your PhD dissertation and your other projects. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Koji. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was nice to meet you both. Thank you very much and goodbye. Bye. Have a nice day. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with this quote from Michael E. Mosley. Past beings interact with present ones because life and death are a continuum and expiration entails no loss of vital essence.